0: So hi, it's Zane Horowitz, and it is our February 2015 uh, Journal Club, and the topic today is Drugs in Combination with Genes that Induce Stevens-Johnson Syndrome. So we're talking about dermatologic, toxicologic issues very often, but this is one, and it actually can be quite serious, if not frankly life-threatening, and we'll see in some of our articles even potentially fatal in some cases. And the reason I sort of backed into this entire thing is I was listening to the out of the corner of my ear the uh, State of the Union address, and in the middle of it, uh, Obama said we have to have personalized medicine in the future. And then two weeks later, he said we're going to give 200 plus billion dollars for personalized medicine research. I said, well, how is that going to affect us in docs? So I know we always talked about some of these drug hypersensitivity things being related to genetics. So I figured I'd delve a little bit deeper into it and so by way of a little bit of introduction I'll start out with this first article which talks about HLA associations and the clinical implications of T cell mediated drug hypersensitivity reactions for review um, this comes out of as we'll see many of these articles Taiwan where they seem to be um, for reasons that will become very apparent we're uh, on the cutting edge of this especially as it relates to these skin reactions because they're at probably higher risk so, they talk about, with some definitions, we'll have some terms floated and go back and forth so we can understand them all. There's severe cutaneous adverse reactions to drugs or scars, and there's a very clever database we'll see called the Regis-Scar that one of the articles is about. I like that. And so, the spectrum of diseases that are in this is the Stevens Johnson syndrome, I think most of us remember from uh, medical school, which overlaps with toxic epidermal. Uh, necrolysis and these are drug reactions that have systemic symptoms mostly in the skin and these are the ones that potentially could be fatal. Um, The next couple are drug reactions with this synophilia and systemic symptoms which is DRESS syndrome which some of the articles address and then there's also drug-induced hypersensitivity reactions also we've seen sometimes called DILI drug-induced liver injury not going to be addressing that today, but these are sort of the spectrum of these things. that may be related. So the, when we're talking specifically about Stevens-Johnson and TEN. The incidence is pretty low. I think most of us, if we've seen one or two cases, in the course, of our practice, sort of remember it, and that's probably all. It cites the incidence is 0.4 to six cases per million persons per year, which is pretty rare, but it carries a mortality as high as five percent to twelve percent for Stevens-Johnson, and up to fifty percent depending on where the study was done for 10. Um, In the other syndrome, DRESS, the skin rash, is usually associated with a fever where it's not with Stevens-Johnson. It also with DRESS is hepatitis and other involvement including lymphadenopathy, uh, leukocytosis, atypical lymphocytosis, and it is also exceedingly rare. And this one has a relapsing remitting course despite stopping the drug, whereas in the other ones it tend to get better. This one just keeps on going. Like the Energizer Bunny, and tends to be more associated with other risk factors like herpes virus six and cytomegaloviruses that may be cofactors. So, getting back to uh, why they even thought of this, why was HLA typing associated with these reactions? The, you know, it, it seems like the strongest association, as we'll talk about, is with one specific HLA B subtype fifteen O two, but it seems that the cytotoxic T cells Release something called, as, as far as the pathophysiology, granulolysin, which is a key mediator of this skin response. So, basically, in their review, they kind of went through a lot of the studies, some of them which, which I'm not going to go into detail because we'll actually cover them individually. And the first one that comes up is carbamazepine, which is an aromatic anticonvulsant. Was approved by the FDA for epilepsy, although we certainly see it for other things like bipolar and trigeminal neuralgia. And 10% of the patients who take it get some kind of skin reaction. Some of them are mild; these maculopapular eruptions within three months are common. And then the more severe ones include things like um, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which the incidence is quite high in Taiwan. We'll see why. Um, They've linked this, and we'll see the data behind it, to this uh, hla b subtype 1502. And there's a second one that's associated with both the other drug eruption and DRESS syndrome, which is HLA-A, subtype 3101 So these are some ones we're going to talk about in more detail here in a moment. Um, it seems that the highest population at risk that carry these alleles are uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese Han Chinese descent but it's also in Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia, the Reunion Islands, and a variety of other places. And interestingly enough, HLA-B 1502 um, has not been observed in other countries in Asia, such as Japan and Korea. Um, so people who have that don't get stevens Johnson syndrome in those countries. So There may be some cofactors that have yet to be elucidated and it doesn't seem to occur in uh, North American or European ancestry either um, the frequency amongst um, patients residing in South Asia for that allele is about eight percent whereas in almost all the other countries it's, it's less than a half percent so this is you know this is something that gets inherited through those uh, inheritance lines. The other one the HLA 3101 is a different determinant of different types of both Stevens Johnson and toxic, and this tends to occur in both Japanese heritages and Europeans, and we're going to review one of the articles that covers that in a moment as well. Um, There are a variety of other subtypes that have been associated with Stevens-Johnson, although not as strongly, so HLAB 1508 in um, Indians, HLAB fifteen eleven in Koreans Mm -hmm. and Japanese, Um, HLA-B-1518 in Japanese, so different studies in different population bases have shown different genetic associations with this reaction. So what we used to call idiopathic is in fact a genetically related disorder. Um, There are other drugs which we'll talk about, um, one of which is um, phenytoin. Um, which we'll talk about, is also uh, metabolized via an arene oxide, and its metabolite is probably a putative molecule here, and it has been associated less strongly so with other HLA-B subtypes as far as causing Stevens-Johnson syndrome, as have um, oxycarbamazepine and lamotrigine. Um, And we'll talk about that study as well. Um, So, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as we'll see, made recommendations that before you start phenytoin and carbamazepine, maybe you should be checked for this, especially if you're in a high-risk population. I kind of asked around very informally, um, and I don't think anyone's doing this. I checked with our lab, and and they can actually do it here on site. You'd think this is like a send-out to some specialty lab, but it's looking through the internet. There's a lot of places that do HLA subtyping, and a lot of them will do specific subtyping. Like if you just want to know if your HLA B1507, you can just ask for that, and it's not terribly expensive. It's in the order of, depending where you look, anywhere from as low as $90 up to maybe $300, $400. So probably not more expensive than some IV antibiotic that we hang in the emergency room many times. There are a few others, and I'll mention these in passing because we're not going to dwell on those today, allopurinol used for gout um, is also associated with um, a specific HLA B subtype. Um, Again, Han Chinese seem to be a very high-risk population, as does Thai uh, populations. Um, There are a couple of antivirals, abacavir and nadirapridine, that are associated with other severe skin reactions. Um, The the abacavir is associated with HLA B5701. And the never never perine is associated with a uh, a non HLA A or B type called drb 101 which no one's going to remember, but um, it's out there. And um, so basically, it's just sort of an overall introduction to the fact that genetically, um, some of us are more prone. And maybe there's personalized medicine and all this research that maybe this money is going to be forthcoming with, will give us just a, a hint, at least toxicologically, what drugs are at risk and which populations are at risk, and we should choose other drugs as substitutes, and we'll talk about why looking for anticonvulsants, that may be difficult, because there are a bunch that are linked. So to start us off with um, our first article, we have Matt, which will tell us about that big screening um, cohort in uh, Taiwan that made the association with HLA-B-1502.
1: Perfect. Yeah, so I um, looked over this article called Carbon induced Toxic Effects in HLA-B-1502 Screening in Taiwan. It's a New England uh, article from 2011. Basically, the overarching question was, can screening for the HLA-B-1502 prior to starting carbon prevent Stephen Johnson's and and T E N? So, Zane kind of already mentioned uh, the spectrum of uh, you know, from erythema multiforme all the way up to TEN. But basically, quick reviews. Stephen Johnson, like we said, fever, malaise, a rapid, rapidly developing, blistering uh, rash, um, usually target like lesions. And then, kind of, the key is uh, mucosal involvement. Usually, the mortality is about 5% for that. Um, and then, when you go on to develop TEN, it's very similar but much more extensive, and the mortality is 25 to 35 percent. So, obviously, a, a, a big problem. And if something could be done on the front end, um, it would potentially be very beneficial. And interestingly, like we were starting to talk about, carbamazepine uh, is the most common cause of Stephen Johnson's in tea and T in Southeast Asia. Um, it's strongly linked to this HLA B1502 with uh, kind of an astounding odds ratio of 1,357 they found it in previous studies. It was a pretty, pretty impressive number there. Um, and how it actually works or thought to work is that the, the HLA-B molecules actually bind to the carbamazepine and present it to the uh, cytotoxic T cells, um, and that leads to the T cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So, kind of like I said, they attempted to do a prospective uh, HLA B fifteen O two screening uh, to see if that, on the back end, decreased the incidence of carbamazepine induced Stephen Johnsons. And so, and so, how they did that, they took twenty three participating hospitals throughout Taiwan, um, who in patients who were going to be receiving carbamazepine for you know uh, you know X Y Z uh, disease. Um, they um, tested all the patients for HLA-B1502, and then if it came back positive, they obviously recommended not uh, starting carbamazepine and either continuing when, continuing the med they were on or switching to a different one. They followed them up for, for two months and um, did the, the study through uh, a couple different companies, and then the only kind of other part of the study was looking at comparing the incident, the kind of known incidents uh, already of carbamazepine-induced uh, Stevens-Johnsons, with what they would kind of find in their study to see if that would would match up, um, and if it, if it actually decreased the uh, the risk. Um, so to do that, they looked at their kind of nationwide. Medical record and found the ICD 910 uh, codes for erythema multiforme, and then kind of looked at one particular hospital and said, of those people with EM, what percent were due, what percent went on to develop, st- or was Steven Johnson, and what percent of those uh, was from carbamazepine. And, and so that's how they kind of estimated their incidence of carbamazepine induced uh, Steven Johnson's. So what they found, um, kind of figure one, so they got about, you know, 4,800 patients, 92% of them were HLA-B negative, and the other 8% or so were positive, which correlated well with previous results. Um, The indications for the carbamazepine um, were kind of varied, epilepsy, neuralgia, neuropathic pain, tinnitus, uh, and several kind of various psych disorders, Um, and so all the baseline characteristics between the positive and negative groups were similar, and kind of the crux of the the paper was when they came to find uh, what adverse outcomes the positive group had um, that did not get carbamazepine and the negative group that did go ahead and get carbamazepine, and that was summarized in Table Two, so if you look at it, it's a little bit curious. So the HLA-B1502 negative uh, patients who got carbamazepine, they note uh, no Steven johnsons um, or TEN in either group. But kind of on the, if you if you look above that, there's you know a good handful of people who got you know rash, itching, blisters, oral ulcers. Um, and so that was kind of raised a little eyebrow, like that kind of sounds like you know at least the beginning of Stephen Johnson's. Um, but they note that no one was diagnosed with Stephen Johnson's, and I didn't feel like they did a very good job of explaining how they would actually diagnose the, the Stephen Johnson's. But <clears throat> their main point was that in the neg people who tested negative who got carbamazepine, no one was uh, formally diagnosed with Stephen Johnson's. Uh, and then when they looked at their incidence to calculate, you know, how many they should have seen, they estimated they should have seen uh, about 10 cases of Stephen Johnson's. And so when you compare the 10 with the zero that they got, they said that's that obviously uh, statistically significant. So that was their main conclusion. Screening for HLA-B1502 and withholding carbamazepine in those that are positive would lead to an increased incidence of, of Stephen Johnson's. Um, there's kind of a few limitations that I found, um, the, the, the incidents, that 10 that they should have found, that was an an estimate. Um, but that was, that seemed kind of the, the best that they could do. Um, and then kind of like I was saying, <clears throat> these reactions that the carbamazepine people did get sound concerning, maybe for early Stephen Johnson's. And it wasn't very clear, you know, how they would have diagnosed Stephen Johnson's. Um, anyway, and this was an unblinded study, and so potentially they would have a, a slight bias not to diagnose uh, Stephen Johnson's, especially if you kind of look. Um, several of the authors did have kind of ties to the, the testing company, um, but I think overall the the odds ratio of you know 1300 there's a clear association there, and I think on the whole it's you know definitely a, a good idea. I, I if I was positive. Uh, for HLA B fifteen O two, I wouldn't take carbamazepine. I think that was that's my end kind of point.
0: Yeah, I mean they looked at this huge group of four thousand folks, and you know not that many of them tested positive. You know two hundred and fifteen, so, you know, so it's a smaller number of the group, but none of them because they didn't give them carbamazepine ended up with Stevens Johnson. Whereas, and the other group, none of them got Stevens Johnson because they weren't at risk. So, you know maybe by applying this test. You could avoid you know, the expense and the risk of death and all the morbidity associated with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And in fact, I believe that's what they do now um, in Taiwan and probably other parts of the world is before you start this drug, you have to get this blood test done and figure out if you can take it safely. It's recommended by the FDA here, but again, I haven't seen or heard of anybody doing it. I've certainly had neurology recommended to different patients here, so it definitely...
2: out there so the the people who got these reactions Mm -hmm. did they say what part in their course they got the reaction did they say if they finished the course because maybe these folks were about to get their stephen johnson syndrome but they had someone saw them see them stop the drug and and maybe that was the yeah it didn't right
1: it didn't clearly say where long but Obviously, it's a study. It's kind of, you know, rigorously done, and so they would be
0: much more on top of these patients with good follow-up than... I think they said that everybody got contacted like nine times or something like that over the course of, like, two two months. months. So they said it's more likely to occur if it's in the first several months of study. But you're right, you know, it could have happened. could have been taken their carbamazepine in the HLA-B negative group for six months, and suddenly something happened, and... Nobody was talk, talking to them then. But they did, have, they did have a database registry. I mean, this is, you know, like we yeah. talked about other countries that have yeah. these huge disease registries that we don't have here. And so it's hard to find people who fall through the cracks unless they leave yeah. the country kind of thing.
2: So do you get the sense that this is a, a common haplotype or is it just common in certain groups, but common in the Taiwanese group, at least in this cohort, was 8%. 8%. Yeah. So if it's common in that cohort and... It's 8%. I mean, this is a fairly obscure haplotype, then, and so fortunately, not a lot of people will be at risk just based on this one, particularly. Right.
0: Yeah, and as you talk about the open article, it seems to certain populations it's more prevalent, in certain populations it's like, it's like less than a half a percent. Hmm. So, but you not know, nobody is, no population is completely without Correct. it. Yep. Okay. So, how long does it take for a genetic testing to come back? Um, it takes uh, about a week. Is uh, if you if it's a send out, I think on site. I, I think they run these. You know, as we're going to see with some of these gene studies, they run hundreds of thousands of samples through this. You know, machine, and you know they get answers pretty quickly. But it's not like oh, you got to wait a month before we start the okay. drug. And, you know, but I imagine if you had a seizure and they wanted to start you on a new drug, you couldn't do it right away because it's going to take some time. But if they were talking about maybe having breakthrough on your old therapy, maybe we should think about changing your meds. Yeah. I think it'd be worthwhile to wait a week mm-hmm. to get the yeah. answer to see are you at risk for a severe reaction. Therefore, you have pick a different medication. Yeah. So changing gears to um, Europe and a different HLA uh, A subtype, um, we have Jillian telling us about um, a different group of at risk patients.
3: So this group uh, paper uh, looked at HLA-A3101 and carbamazepine-induced hypersensitivity reactions in Europeans. And this is McCormick et al., uh, New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. Um, and uh paper describes uh, as previously mentioned that we have a, a spectrum of reactions and that the 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 form that's a maculopapular exanthem is in 5-10% to 10% of, of European ancestry patients, and that the uh, DRESS syndrome uh, essentially uh, also exists where you have rash fever eosinophilia, and then that the spectrum extends um, to SJS and TEN, and that that incidence of, of those two, um, or, or that spectrum of SJS and TEN is one in... Uh, it can be as rare as 1 in 10,000 people here of European ancestry. And as mentioned, that the HLA-B-1502 allele is a predictor of SJS and, and TEN in Han Chinese folks, as well as people from Thailand, Malaysia, and India. And so the question here was, you know, if this allele, the 1502B, has a prevalence of less than 2% in the European population, is there maybe a different allele? Um, to look at here. And so this paper looked at data from actually two different independent studies that were kind of published together in this paper and looking at the HLA-A3101 allele and its association with induced pain-induced hypersensitivity reaction in northern Europeans. And so there are multiple collaborating uh, centers that were involved in their methods, and patients were confirmed to be of European uh, ancestry either by self-report or by a genetic marker analysis And 26 subjects um, with a hypersensitivity syndrome characterized by rash or liver involvement within three months after starting their carbamazepine therapy. And at least two of the following other prolonged recovery phase despite withdrawal of the drug, fever, and organ involvement such as uh, hemadromality, eosinophilia, or atypical lymphocytosis. Um, And here DRESS syndrome is considered to be the same as hypersensitivity syndrome. Um, They included one subject that just had an acute generalized uh, exanthematous postulosis um, and looked at 106 subjects with maculopapular rash without systemic symptoms, uh, 12 subjects with SJS-TEN, and then looked at genotype data from this Wellcome Trust case control consortium that was essentially their population control group, and each center used a different kind of subset of samples from within that. And then they had clinical controls that were 257 subjects with epilepsy who had been on carbamazepine for three months and had no issues. And each site used um, a different but very specific DNA genotyping assay. Essentially, DNA is amplified and then fragmented into pieces, and then you type it for for, uh, alleles by hybridizing the DNA with standards, and then you identify the presence of certain alleles within the patient DNA DNA. They go into this, they talk about this process of imputation, um, which very briefly is just very, there's a, a, you do a statistical inference of unobserved genotypes. So because you can't look at every kind of genotype, there are some that you don't essentially know about yet. You use areas of known genetic variation, so particular SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, and then use that as a reference and kind of look around in that area so that you can use an array but look more specifically about those areas that are more likely to have variation um, that are of importance here. And then you have those alleles that are imputed or kind of found in this process. You then confirm those using direct PCR you know, uh, genotyping. And then they did a logistic regression analysis to find out is are these... Um, specific alleles of significance when you look genome-wide, so their p-values are very, very tiny because they're looking um, to, to be very um, kind of specific here. And so they looked at a whole bunch of SNPs um, from 22 subjects with carbamazepine-induced hypersensitivity and compared that to 2,691 controls and found this very strong signal in the MHC region. That's the region of chromosomes where the HLA genes are, Um, particularly in chromosome SIPs. They uh, found several SNPs around the HLA uh, region that that reached genome-wide significance with very, very small p-value. And they found that that little area was seen in 40% of their subjects versus about 5% of the controls. And most notable was this HLA-A3101 locus. And the odds ratio for a carbamazepine-induced hypersensitivity was 12.1, and the 95% confidence interval was 1.27 to 121. Um, And then when they looked at the 43 subjects with just the maculopapular rash versus 1,296 healthy controls, again, HLA-A3101 was the most strongly associated allele and it's found in 27% of the subjects versus 4% of controls. Um, that analysis did not reach significance until they did a combined analysis with some additional subjects, which then reached significance with an odds ratio of 8. Um, so if you look at figure one, uh, just it essentially just gives you a visual for that signal in the HLA-A region of chromosome 6. They did what they call a Manhattan plot for logistic regression. And what you see... Kind of these spikes, both at the top of the, the graph and the bottom, that just show you that there is um, an association there at that area of um, that for that particular allele. And then for the SJS TEN subject, there are 12 subjects, um, and 42% of them carried that same allele versus 4% of the controls. So the odds ratio there is about 25 to 26. Um and then they did a pooled analysis of all the subjects, and so there's this overall odds ratio of about nine with a confidence interval of four to twenty-one for the presence of that allele and um demonstrated that, that, that having that allele get, has a sensitivity of about twenty-six percent, but a specificity of about ninety-six percent. So it kind of overcalls it, but if it's there, um you're at risk. And um they note, um, they kind of help us through a little bit of, of thinking here, that being hypersensitivity has a prevalence of, of about 5% in this population, or 1 in 20. And so post-test probability goes up to 26% based on the positive likelihood ratio. So you look at true positives versus false positives, and that likelihood ratio becomes about 6.75. Um, so when you're... you're Thinking about pre and post test probability if that allele is present, that instead of 5% of the population of this group who have this allele, now 26% of them could have a reaction, um, which you know bumps it up into the very concerning range. And so, you know, the bigger picture in their discussion, they note um, that um, they think that this HLA A3101 is an important predictor of the full spectrum of hypersensitivity everything from just the basic rash, kind of maculopapular rash, to the SJS, TEN, kind of more severe uh, aspect of the spectrum. And that the presence of the allele is associated with increased risk, obviously, but it's neither necessary nor sufficient for the development of a reaction. So it kind of could be used for screening and a decision made about whether or not to start a medication like this. And then they describe other similar things like um, a back of year uh, with HLA B5701 and then the HLA B1502 that Matt talked about with the, the um, Han Chinese population and other Asian populations that increase risk for SJSTN. And um, they note that uh, the the 3101 allele in the study is um, associated with a broad range of reaction. Reactions. It probably means this involves multiple types of T cells. So there's all sorts of things that can happen. Whereas the um, uh, in the the studies where it's mo- like the one Matt talked about, where it's mostly S J S T E N, that's probably a, an HLA region that deals with one specific type of T cell that presents the um, reactive agent and then causes a specific type of reaction. Um, so based on this study, um, depending on whether you think 5 or 10% of European ancestry folks have um, carbamazepine-induced hypersensitivity, Um, you would need to screen anywhere from 39 to 83 patients to prevent an SJS-TEN, which given, as Dr. Horowitz mentioned, it's not a particularly expensive test, is probably reasonable to consider to prevent a very, very um, severe reaction. So these authors suggest that it may be worth... um, Recommending allele testing on the drug label for carbamazepine, um, not just for um, the 5701, but also potentially for the 3101
0: as well. Yeah, so it's not just a single HLA type, there may be multiple ones, and there may be others in different populations as similar studies like this get done in different countries around the world. I mean, some of these, like the Wellcome Trust, the data bank, and some of the ones they're starting to do in this country. Uh, literally everybody who like ever gets blood drawn, like they send off a little sample and they stick it away in a in a little, in a blood bank, and they know what all your genetic material is, so they can look it up. Someone wants to search it, his relationship to another disease. So that stuff is out there to be looked at, and um, certainly stuff for some futures big. Big, yeah. Big population based yeah. This studies. is
2: the podcast to save for like your great, great, great grandchildren, so they can sit around the table and laugh at us and see. God, these guys are you so mean like you started a drug without HLA typing? What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and like, carbamazepine will be like the poster child for the. the-
4: the drug maybe the thalidomide. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? We'll give them And it may not be as late as this, sir, as
0: <laughs> I mean, this is kind of thing which I, I think is because the cost is is you know, this is not like it's gonna couple a million dollars to do these tests. I, I think as they make more and more associations and certainly in cancer chemotherapy, when I when even talking about this, but they do this for certain types of diseases. The question is are we gonna do it for a common diseases that we treat with common drugs like epilepsy. Or, as a quick segue to our next article, how about just giving uh, people things like Tylenol? So, Aaron is going to tell us about that. But As some of you may remember, there was a box warning added recently to plain old acetaminophen.
5: So um, I have, it's uh, two case reports. Um, it's called Rapid Onset of Stephen Johnson Syndrome and Toxic abdermal Necrolysis After ingestion of uh, Acetaminophen. And then we also have an FDA kind of publication to talk about as well. Um, so what this paper talks about is that it kind of goes into what Stephen Johnson is and why it's bad and all of that. We kind of already discussed that, so we'll skip over that. Um, to state that There have been several reports previously of associations with acetaminophen and SJS and TEN. Some hypersensitivity reactions, they're rare, but have been described in the literature. Um, It's been associated occasionally with vasculitis, glomerulonephritis, and these cutaneous reactions. Um, And there was, it does quote one study, that um, acetaminophen was implicated in 48 out of 245 patients with suspected SJS and TEN. Um, So for their first case that they talk about, it is a 43-year-old female who came in with an erythematous skin rash with bullae all over her body. Um, she had oropharyngeal ulceration and conjunctivitis as well. And this all developed two days after using acetaminophen to treat um, um, URI. They don't talk about how much acetaminophen she used or anything like that. Um, they say she has a history of asthma and also reportedly an incident previously of drug hypersensitivity with urticaria to acetaminophen about a year prior to that. Um, on their kind of Exam of her that they describe, they say she's ill appearing, she's febrile, she's tachycardic, and then they describe the rash as a macular rash with epidermal detachment on about 20% of her body. Nikolsky sign is positive, and then she has tenderness over the rash. Um, they kind of go into some of her workup, which wasn't terribly remarkable, um, and then they say that her her skin lesions rapidly progressed to covering more of her body with um, the detachment over more than 30% of her body surface, despite the fact that they treated her with steroids. Um, And after this, they diagnosed her with TN and started IVIG at two grams per kilogram per day for three days, which in turn helped the symptoms resolve um, and the severity decreased. Um, She was given antibiotics for three weeks and ended up being discharged after about 33 days in the hospital. Um, They stated they investigated other causes and didn't find anything, but don't really go into what they looked for or what other things they considered. Um, So, but their second case is a 60-year-old guy with a history of diabetes and hypertension who was also being treated with acetaminophen for a URI. Um, He had no history of allergic responses. Um, And then on the three days after his initial exposure, he started having an erythematous rash throughout his body. Um, It kind of progressively got worse, started to have bullet. And on day seven, after exposure, was admitted to the hospital and treated with IVIG, this time at a lesser dose, um, with one gram per kilogram per day for three days. He also had a fever, um, and he actually had a biopsy, which is how they diagnosed him with TEN. Um, and um, I, the authors of this article kind of saw him on day 14 when he was transferred to their hospital, um, at which time his exam was very similar to the previous case. Um, and his kind of rest of his workup was also fairly unremarkable. Um, Other than kind of supportive treatment for him, he also got mucosin ointment, and his skin condition also gradually improved and was also in the hospital for about a month. Um, And they also thought that he didn't have any other drugs as as risk factors for the TEN. Um, So for this, I think, you know, what they're kind of pointing at is that this is rare. There haven't been a lot of reports of acetaminophen with these skin reactions, but there have been a couple cases or instances that are documented that has been confirmed with a rechallenge test, so they feel like it's pretty important, especially because it's such a widely used drug that is in many other drugs that are not just straight acetaminophen Um the kind of interesting things about it is that while it usually takes somewhere between 15 and 25 days to develop a reaction, these were all in two or three days, or these were both in two or three days. um, So it seems to be pretty quickly. and the other thing they kind of touched on was the IVIG um, for treatment and the dosing and how they recommended that two grams, at least two grams per kilogram per day has more of a benefit than less than that. As you kind of saw in these patients, the one who got two, two grams per kilogram per day got better, um, kind of more related to that IVIG than the, the other patient. Um, they did not do rechallenge tests in these patients because they're contraindicated. And then the rest was just supportive care and like, plus or minus for corticosteroids. Um, And then, like I said, they didn't really get into any suggestions or comments about the dosing, how how much these people took, if that has any relation, um, how long they took it for, any other risk factors. Obviously, that first patient had a previous reaction, which may have been a risk factor. Um, And like I said, they didn't comment on other possible causes or why they thought it was just that. Um, And then the other kind of article is this FDA publication from JAMA of last year, or two years ago, actually 2013, and it says that they are now concerned about this causing, about the acetaminophen causing the SJS or TEN, and they are going to be putting a warning on the labels for all prescribed acetaminophen and recommending it for all over-the-counter products containing acetaminophen, and they base this on kind of the similar things that we already talked about, um, multiple case reports, and some with re-emergence of symptoms when they've been re-exposed after their symptoms had initially resolved also between 1969 and 2012 they identified 91 cases that seemed to be associated with acetaminophen and 12 of which resulted in death so while this is very rare um they still are going to be putting this black or this new warning on there um, but they did not comment on the incidents or anything because it's so rare and kind of hard to determine um that's
0: about it yeah, I mean, the instance obviously, 40 years to generate yes. 91 cases, although people weren't looking for it. So I, I think they felt compelled to say, when, when it came out, it was very controversial. People said, we've used Tylenol for generations, and most people looked at each other and said, well, we've never seen this. What, what does it really happen? And, and indeed, it does, 90 cases over 40 years. So obviously, they probably need to do the same kind of genetic studies on these n- cases going forward and doing... genome-wide analysis on them and age match and uh, sex match controls and figuring out is it related to an HLA type? Is it related to something else in their makeup?
2: Yeah, so I think what's also important here is that third something that might be this URI, because case number two, this 50-something-year-old guy, I would venture to say this was not the first experiment he's ever had with acetaminophen. I doubt it was right. So, so, yeah, why him, why now? Yeah. And the him has always been the same, but maybe it's the it's the right infection, it's the right host, it's the right xenobiotic that all together sort of create this thing. And um, that may have This might maybe. not be
6: as clean as it is with carbonase. Right. You know, and the other thing, I'm always very skeptical about assigning blame to something that's ubiquitous mm-hmm. you know um, if this is true and I think it's the right thing to put the warning on the label so that people are aware of it um, but if it's true you know how many people with Stevens Johnson had Tylenol in the last week probably a hundred percent right so it and, you know, they did not eliminate all other medications that they could have been exposed to. And as you said, you know, this could be a viral-induced skin yeah. uh, reaction. This like could be a, a lot of other brown things. I mean, Cetaminophen is in a lot of people's drinking water. i would been argue, you know, it's number one prescribed medication in the country, 130 prescriptions, 100 good, I yeah. on the acetaminophen. It's the number one over-the-counter medication all throughout the world. Yeah. You know, if yeah, I always i am a little bit hesitant to start... Blaming something that's truly, truly ubiquitous. But I think it's the right thing to do to put the warning on that. We should all be aware of it as well. Um, Interesting, but I wonder if what you're saying is right. It's going to be this very, very complex... It would be just as plausible for it to be 91 cases of a rare virus. Fair, yeah. You know, over 40 years. Right. So I think we have to be skeptical, but respectful.
2: (laughs) Trust (laughs) but (laughs) verify. Exactly. Well, yeah,
0: it sounds like it was one of these perfect storm kind of setups. Like you mentioned, Ray's syndrome is the same thing. You had to have a lot of cases, like some genetic predisposition that people didn't know about, plus you got chickenpox or influenza, plus you got aspirin, and some of those, but not all those people, developed this rare disease, Ray's syndrome, which is, as we moved away from giving children aspirin, has more or less disappeared in that age group. No one suggests stopping using Tylenol in children. It's just like, be aware if your kid gets a rash, don't sure. just say, oh, that just proves he's got a viral illness. It may just prove, you're looking in the mouth, that they have mucosal involvement, that they're developing a more serious effect and you know, they need to bring them in and take a good, close look at them. I mean, it does put a face on the fact that these people spend a month at the hospital severely ill, and the cost of morbidity associated with that is just astronomical. So speaking of children, we have another uh, broad-based study here looking at, like, which children actually get SGS and T E M. Did
4: Yeah, so this article is called Medications as Risk Factors of Stephen-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis in Children, a full Analysis. So it was in pediatrics um, in 2009. And the goal of the study was to determine which meds cause the highest risk of these two syndromes in kids under 15, and if they're the same drugs as in the general population, and adults, and if other factors are also involved. So the other factors, they looked at people with HIV, herpes, radiotherapy, and lupus, um, also carry a risk, but medications are the cause for about 70% um, of these two diseases. So this paper looked at two, two of the largest case control studies, the SCAR study and the EuroSCAR, so severe cutaneous adverse reaction. So that was 368 cases and 383 cases, um, respectively. So only 10% of these combined cases were children, which is why they did a pooled analysis and um, had um, 80 cases. So their methods were, they looked at these two international multi studies, they had identical methodologies. Children were under 15 and hospitalized for either SGS or TEN or the overlap syndrome. And they also had 3-to-1 controls matched for age, gender, and country. And these were just hospitalized children with acute conditions not attributed to medications. So, like I said, 80 cases and 216 controls. And we had a group of experts that were blinded review all the cases with charts and pictures and histopathology to confirm the diagnosis as well as the date of onset. So, they were also making sure that the drug exposure was in within seven days, except for phenobarbital, which has longer long, long half life. So they, kind of put that. Um, so, they looked at highly suspected medications and suspected. For the highly suspected, they did anti infective anti-infective um, sulfanamides, well, sorry, barbiturates, carbam- carbamazepine, phenytoin, and amotrigine. And for just other like lower suspected, acetaminophen, aminopolis- penicillins, valproate, um, NSAIDs, and salicylates, and corticosteroids. So in terms of results, of the 80 cases, 26% um, had SGS, 34% had TEN, and 40% had that overlap syndrome, which is the team that 10 and 40% of.
0: The yeah, it has to do with how much body surface area is exactly. involved. So lower is SGS, higher is uh, yeah.
4: 10 And we found the median skin detachment was 20, 20% in these kids. 23% had fever, and 24% had URIs. And some of the other interesting things were that 9% of the kids had a recent um, um, M pneumonia infection, and they had found no correlations between any of the other um, like herpes or HIV or lupus for the kids to really have this. In terms of medications, so 39% of the children had taken a highly suspected medication and less than 1% of the controls. And so like I said, those are the anti-infective sylvanorias, the phenobarb, the modrigine, and the carbamazepine. those were all strongly associated. And then 70% of the suspected, med- took one suspected medication, and that was 15% of the controls. And... Um, the, the significance they found with that was not steroids, benzos couldn't be differentiated, but valproic acid, acetaminophen, and NSAIDs were shown to have higher risks. And you can see a full chart of this table. Sorry. Yeah, table 3 and table 4 kind of goes through all those with the confidence with the um, odds ratios and such. So speaking of acetaminophen, they had some difficulty for the reasons we were discussing. Um, because people were using it to treat proton-like syndromes like fever and pain. But if you look at figure three, they kind of break it down. The reason they said it was still significant was because within the first two days, when people were just taking Tylenol, the onset of disease was showing up. But then as you move further along in the time course, people are taking medicine with other highly suspected medications that couldn't differentiate. But there's still enough data to show that it was significant, even with that conflict. Um, So in terms of discussion, it's it's a rare disease, and there's naturally a low sample size. Um, So there wasn't really, but they did feel like they had enough statistical power to identify the relative risks of these two diseases. Um, And especially for the drugs that were rarely used by the controls, so in the highly suspected groups. So they found no gender difference between the children and um, a lower mortality rate than adults at 7.5% compared to the 20-25% to in adults. And also that there's a delay in diagnosis of the kids for about three days. Um, and almost all of them had erosion. and talked about. In terms of acetaminophen, we talked about already, but they couldn't really test all the drugs if they didn't have enough of a sample size for, for all of these. So, I mean, I think their conclusion was that there are similar drugs as adults, including the carbamazepine that we discussed, but still more data is needed to actually fully
0: well, so this was again a big database study, and they pulled off just the kids, which didn't amount to a large number mm-hmm. of cases—only 80. But they did find, and again, it brings up the same thing we talked about with acetaminophen: were they treating their pain and their fever, mm-hmm. which every kid everywhere is getting treated with acetaminophen? But they did find a statistical significance associated with it, and so it. And these may have been some of the cases that were reported to the FDA, along with these individual case reports, and then the very famous one where they had a child who was on Tylenol, got this drug, resolved, and then later got the drug again and got it again. So it so suggested that it was just the Tylenol, at least in that scenario. Um, so I think it just raises our awareness that Tylenol has to be of amongst the drugs that can cause this severe reaction. We have to have our radar up and keep an eye out for it. Um, this did not look at any of the HLA associations or any of the other risk factors. That would have been nice. You know, but but no, it's right for a study that like Julian
2: presented. No. Yeah. You, take, you take those four yeah. and use some sort of.
6: there's certainly enough variability in the metabolism of acetaminophen that <clears> this <throat> very easily could be a third metabolite or some yeah. very, very unusual yeah. metabolite that only someone with some genetic predisposition makes that metabolite. Uh, and that, right. Though It's interesting when you look at this study, if you look at figure three, um, they make this sort of argument that the, the onset's about the same. What's fascinating about it is if you look at the x-axis on both of them, the scales are completely different. And if you look at the bottom one, the cases, almost every case happened between day 8 and 22. And if you look up, there's only one case of acetaminophen in that entire group that is between 8 and 22 days after the... Um, <clears throat> they should not have been allowed to, uh, to alter their x-axis. To, I mean, it, it, I don't think they were doing it maliciously. It's just it really, when I first glanced at this, I was Wow, that's amazing. But if you notice, almost all of their cases were people who got acetaminophen yesterday or the day before, which doesn't really fit. It either doesn't fit with SJS-TEN or acetaminophen is completely unique in the world of SJS-TEN so that it happens immediately. It's the same for so, the two cases that I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's the, you know, is acetaminophen completely different from every other drug that causes this? Maybe, or is it associated and not causative. Yeah. I think this probably needs to be a lot mm-hmm. more explanation. Uh, exploration, not explanation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess a little both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it would be very intriguing if someone could take a single dose of acetaminophen and get SJS the same day. That would be yeah. a completely different world in, in these severe skin reactions. It would be a, like ra- practically a totally different syndrome. Mm-hmm. So something to think about.
0: Well, funny you should bring up about metabolites because I'm going to talk about this next article here about genetic (laughs) variants associated with phenytoin related severe cutaneous adverse reactions. And this kind of looks at, again, what we're looking at these scars, severe cutaneous adverse reactions, with a little bit different perspective. And this time, looking at the drug uh, phenytoin. Which, you know, at the time is widely prescribed as an antileptic drug, and it is also associated with the complete spectrum we talked about everything from macula, papula, erythema, all the way up to DRESS, SJS, and, and 10. Um, inter- interestingly, I'm going to talk about some further their discussion first because it's important as we go through the methods. So, Delantin, everybody knows, therapeutic range is like 10, 20 mics per mil. It's nonlinear pharmacokinetics, and it's metabolized by a CYP2C9 in this case, to an intermediary interactive product, which is hydroxyphenylphenylhydantoin, which will abbreviate HPPN for simplicity. And the formation of this is mediated by what your CYP9 activity is, whether you have a lot of it or a little of it. If you have a lot of it, you have more of this metabolite. And so people who may have CYP2C9 variants like the asterisk 3 variant may have a reduction in clearance and therefore have more phenytoin and more of a prolonged peak of this metabolite which may speculating back to Tylenol be one of the uh, implicated reasons similarly if people have similar issues with uh, different various variations of uh, metabolic uh, metabolism so what they did is uh, Once again, this was done in Taiwan. It was the same hospital where they did the other study. They had this big service called the Taiwan Severe Cutaneous Adverse Reaction Consortium. And they also used a hospital in Malaysia and the National Institute of Health Science in Osaka, Japan. So three different hospitals. All cases were evaluated by two dermatologists at each site, different ones. And they were looking for severe cutaneous reactions and trying to find out what the links were. Um, Once again, their definition was Stevens Johnson was skin detachment of less than 10% of the body surface area. The overlap syndrome was 10 to 29%, essentially 30%, and 10 was detachment of greater than 30%. I've seen different numbers in different studies, but I think that's generally the range where people um, uh, use those uh, overlap syndromes and the two ends of the spectrum. The dress syndrome involved cutaneous involvement with a rash. And fever, asinophilia, lymph node involvement, atypical lymphocytes, and then multi-organ system failure. And then the last thing is this general maculopactor transient eruption, which is generally self-limited. They used um, Noronco scoring, which is sort of a causative scoring for drug side effects, and an Alden scoring, which is an algorithm for drug casual uh, causes of drugs, to kind of help them in their minds prove that... The drug they were looking at was responsible. And then they did this geno- genome wide <laughs> surveillance where basically they were looking for SNPs again and uh, they had like all of the different genes for all these folks uh, analyzed. And then, very interestingly, what they did a little bit differently is they actually got phenytoin samples from patients uh, the day they stopped. Taking the phenytoin when they were diagnosed with the uh, skin reaction, and then from controls who were taking it normally. Um, so, what did they find? So, they found out 168 cases that had phenytoin-associated cutaneous reactions. Um, 48 of them had this SJS-TEN overlap syndrome. 42 of them had Dress syndrome, and 78 of them had just maculopapular um, exanthems. And then they matched them with 130 tolerant controls, where basically people in the hospital were already taking Valentin and didn't have any problems with it. There wasn't any difference in the average daily dose between those two groups, but of note, 13 of the patients in the skin cohort died as a result of their disease. Um, the estimated prevalence of this is, is indeed rare, since we're talking about rare diseases here, is 0.24%. But patients on phenytoin developed STSTN um, and 0.21% developed dress. Uh, the RASH is a little more common, about 3%. Um, in their control population, they selected about 412 individuals from the Taiwan Biobank where these genetic details were uh were stored, and they had them self-report their ancestry. Um of course, in Taiwan, 98% of the population was Han Chinese, um, so it wasn't likely to get a mixed group there. And then they found clustered 16 different individual SNPs, this time on chromosome 10, that were associated with the dilatin um, scars, uh, or severe cutaneous reactions. And then eight that had the lowest p-values, which means the highest association, were all on the 2C gene. And they were 2C19, uh, 2C18, 2C9, and 2C8. So those four were sort of the big four associated genes. And so the, this 10 SNPs were, so individual polymorphisms that were different, all were associated with those genes. And they, they were rare in um, the frequency in the general population. And the largest association was with CYP2C9 asterisk 3, which is the variant 3. So people who had different rates of metabolism as a result of having um, an inhib- a non-functioning or partially functioning CYP2C9. And they had an odds ratio for developing Stevens-Johnson syndrome or 10 of 30 and an odds ratio for developing dress of 19 um, if they had those polymorphisms. And the other interesting thing was um, when they looked at the levels of the drugs. I'm trying to find out where that was. So right before they stopped the drugs, the concentration of Dilantin was significantly higher in patients who were on Stevens-Johnson and TN, despite it was 34, so outside the therapeutic range. On the, as the mean um, compared with the patients who were to, uh, phenytoin tolerant, who were taking the same, exact same doses whose mean level was 11. So these folks were not metabolizing, you know, although this is kind of a random sample, they were not metabolizing their dilantin very quickly or and they were making perhaps this intermediary toxic component that was causing the Stevens-Johnson syndrome, at least that's a speculation of what the study seems to prove. Uh, prove. Additionally, after the drug was stopped and they looked at the decrease in the phenytoin levels, it fell much more slowly. Um, where after five days, it was as, it was still two point five in the patients who had skin reactions, but was um, it was lower in the group that didn't. It was nearly gone. So they found so they they feel that the CYP two C nine three carriers have severe cutaneous reactions at a significantly higher levels of dilan, um. At contribute to, you know, the risk for Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And that's where they go into the whole discussion about this metabolite HPHP in that either you're making it more prolonged or it seems to be that, you know, it's around longer and has a higher propensity to cause the skin reaction. Um, So interesting. And then someone wrote a letter saying, well, did you factor in, like, all the other drugs that these patients are taking – that interact with this enzyme, because we all know there's lots of drug-drug interactions, especially at CYP2C9, and they said, yeah, we, you know, we did this naranjo score and this Alden scoring, and it really seemed to be just this drug, but we found eight patients that were taking either a, um, an inducer of CYP, which is rifampin, one of those, and seven patients that were reducing. They had inhibitors of CYP, which included drugs such as glycophonac, lancetoprenzol, gluconazol, and and the other PPIs, and valproic acid. And so the, they reanalyzed their data, thrown these eight patients out, and still the significant scenario persisted that the odds ratio was still 22, that if you had a CYP2C9 asterisk um, 3 gene, that you would get steven Johnson syndrome. So so something different than the HLA system, this time linked to your metabolic ability or lack of metabolic ability, really, because of a variant. And this may be, you know, Stevens-Johnson may not be the same reason in every patient. Some of it may be to histocompatibility genes, some of it may be to enzymatic in in the liver, and some of it may be other factors we haven't even figured out yet. In the case of Tylenol, it may be something completely different because it's even rare. It may be a virus plus a gene plus something else so that's yet to be decided so lastly I just wanted to finish up just to talk about one other drug that we use which is uh, levetiracetam, and a couple of cases
2: mm-hmm. so I can't
0: say that <laughs> so <laughs> I'll just call it pepper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I practiced like for like five minutes so that's really good practice <laughs>
7: Um, but so this was levator acetam, a, <laughs> <laughs> <eight, eight>, <laughs> yeah. um, a possible new inducer of toxic epidermal necrolysis and Stevens Johnson syndrome in two cases. So basically, what they did is just talked about a couple of patients um, and then um, looked at a couple of different algorithms for trying to predict the cause of the. Um, So, this kind of started off on January 31st, 2011. The FDA um, added Kefra to the list of drugs under safety monitoring for those SGS and TEN. Um, And and it's been like sort of previously one of these less um, risky drugs to cause the problems, like a more safe um, type of um, drug because it's not um, chemical or not. um, You know, the shape is not the same, but the structure is similar. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
2: Um,
7: So uh, they looked at these two cases. So the first case was a 20-year-old female who was in a car crash um, and had a cerebral injury and then presented a month later with 60% total skin detachment. And um, they did a skin biopsy that showed full thickness necrosis, and was negative on any direct immunofluorescence. <clears throat> um, she was um, hospitalized for 26 days and then discharged after discontinuation of all drug treatment and had no relapse. And then the second case was a 29-year-old female who was um, had a history of HIV, um, cerebral tuberculosis tuberculosis. Practiced that one for a long time last night too. Yeah, and Aspergillus niger external otitis. Um, and she presented with greater than 50% skin detachment. And again, found to have um, histologic examination of full fitness necrosis and, and negative directing necroplexins. Uh, so she was hospitalized for 46 days and then discharged without relapse. So, what they did in this study is they took, there's three different kind of algorithm scoring systems that they looked at. And the first one was the algorithm that you kind of mentioned earlier, um, which is supposed to be specific to SGA, SGS and TEN. And it includes um, all these kind of interesting things, like, which I just, I don't know, I thought I had a hard time, like, trying to be like, okay, that's totally going to cause it, And there's, like, a scoring system is very, like, just almost seemed arbitrary with negatives and positives. And uh, so... Um, but they look at the time to and um, onset, the drug present at onset um, in the patient, a prechallenge or rechallenge, a drug known for causality, and then other causes. Um, and um, so they so and then the other ones I can just kind of go over real quick. though, was the Smeranho scoring, which is very similar. Had 10 points, um, had a lot of the same things to it, and that one was just. Um, to determine the likelihood of a drug causing a reaction. And then the last one um, was the, the French um, pharmacovigilance score. And that was um, calculating the relationship between adverse reactions and the patient's therapy. And it looked again at seven criteria in two different groups um, of timing of the drug and the signs and symptoms. And so um, and this, the first patient, um, the, uh, case number one, she was on Keppra, loxapine, topical sulfur diazine, and iron folic acid. And they found that, um, the highest ALDIN score was, um, Keppra and loxapine. And then the highest around her score was, um, actually loxapine. And then she had, like, um, the highest scores for the, um, French um, pharmacovigilance scores this was pretty much the same for all of them. Um, and so and then the second case she was on Kepra, metronidazole, borconazole, and clobazam. Um, and the, that found the highest um, Neur- um, Alvin scores to be both um, Kepra and metronidazole. And then the highest uh, Neuronho score was metronidazole and borconazole. And um uh, so, so I, so I guess their, their kind of conclusion was, um, was that, um, Kepra essentially, you know, might have this unreported, um, causality or, you know, at least, um, might cause, um, SJS or TEN.
0: Yeah. So that's one of these cautions, how you interpret just the title of a paper. So you read the title, it's like, a possible new inducer, when you read the details, it's like, well, each of these patients were on four or five drugs, and when you apply these three somewhat imperfect scoring systems to it, you know, Keckler didn't come out they first in every first. one of them. Wow. It kind of came out second in a couple of them, and so it could have been anything. And so look, going back to, like, the Tylenol thing and the, all these other ones, it's very hard to sign causality or even association um, without causality Um to these drugs now doesn't mean we shouldn't keep our antenna up. And you know, if somebody's only taking keppra and nothing else and they get Stevens Johnson syndrome, yeah, it should be a cause for reporting. Um, but these are certainly not the poster child cases for keppra inducing Stevens Johnson, at least not yet. Again, when you get it, you get sick. These people are in the hospital for like over a month each, and uh. Um, so if you're thinking like, well, dilantin and carbamazepine, we're not going to use those drugs anymore. Put everybody on capra, which is, seems to be done anyway nowadays. Uh, you know, there may be some risk there too. We don't know yet. So don't take this as yes, it's on the list of things. But yes, we should always be vigilant for um, new associations of drug side effects, which come out often slowly. So I thought it was just like general, you know, introduction to some genetic associations in toxicology. They said five, ten years from now, you're probably all gonna be like getting these tests and saying, oh, I'm gonna start someone on drug X. I have to do these tests first to find out if they can take it safely versus drug Y, which is not associated with a bunch of side effects and it may not be Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It may be liver failure with Tylenol. It may be other things that we have yet to see associations made yet genetically. But this is the future, and like I said, I don't want to get, spend a lot of money investigating this, so I think you're going to see a lot more studies and maybe just a taste of what's yet to come in your, your careers. So with that, we'll see you next month.